The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How you guys doing? Thanks for coming out on this rainy day. It's good to be at the midweek, right? I know there's a lot of stuff that uh, can keep you from coming, a lot of busy things. Sometimes you just have a long day at work and it doesn't feel like it makes sense to get back in your car <laughs> and drive somewhere else. But um, it really is a blessing to be with God's people and to get into the word and to worship. Um, sometimes that's just what we need to get over the hump into the weekend. So thank you guys for coming out. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be starting in verse 12 tonight. You guys been enjoying the book of Mark? What a treasure, right? I just, um, I probably, be, probably uh, enjoy it more than you guys because I'm, I'm in it more studying, but it really is a phenomenal little book. I love the simplicity of it. I love that the gospel writer Mark doesn't go into as many details, but he gets to the heart of things. Um, it's really gonna be something for me. I think that's gonna be forever a treasure um, as I read the book of Mark. But um, tonight, I'm super excited for what, uh, for what we're gonna look into it kind of a crazy, uh, kind of a crazy weekend. My wife and I went up to Portland uh, on Monday and Tuesday, and it was really funny. Went up to see some friends, and uh, Sunday actually we went up Sunday night. I'm sorry, right after church, and hung out with some friends. It's about nine, ten o'clock. Long day of driving around Portland, getting lost, ready to go back to the motel. Whatnot. This has nothing to do with the sermon, by the way. So, uh, and <laughs> it was like time to go, time to go to the motel. I type in the directions into my phone, and it says that you have a five and a half hour drive ahead of you. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I shouldn't have a five. I was expecting maybe half an hour or something like that. We're trying to stay in Vancouver. And uh, so that can't be right. So I call Comfort Inn and Suites in Vancouver and I say, hey, check in my reservation. They say, uh, yeah, you don't have a reservation here. And I said, oh, okay. So they said, there's another Comfort Suites in Vancouver. So I call the other Comfort Suites and I say, hey, my name's Sam Peck, blah, blah, blah. They said, yeah, you don't have a reservation here. So finally, I look at my, my reservation, I look at my, con- I had booked a hotel in Vancouver, Canada. <laughs> so we drove to Canada, and, no, I'm just kidding, no, we didn't do that. It was a crazy weekend um, up there, but it was really fun, so um, I'm going to pray, and we're going get, to get started. Father, Lord, there's so many layers to you, God, there's so many layers to your word, uh, there's so much that we could talk about tonight, but I'm really interested only tonight in what you want to say specifically to Heritage. Lord, what is the prophetic word tonight that you have for us, God? I know that it's not a yoke of bondage. I know that it's not legalism. I know that the prophetic word you have for us tonight, is, it, it sets us free. It allows us to walk in the things that we need to walk in, God. So I pray that through the text tonight, Jesus, that if you want me to throw my notes in the garbage, and so be that, Holy Spirit, come into this place and speak directly through me to Heritage tonight, Lord, in a way that gives life, in a way that revitalizes. If there's anyone in this room tonight, Father, that is uh, feeling like they just can't make it another day, if they're feeling frustrated, if they're feeling mad at you, if they're feeling confused, I pray, Jesus, that you would minister wisdom and peace and comfort through your word tonight. I pray that Jesus is powerful and mighty name. Amen. So I'm going to start tonight with a question. I like to do that sometimes. Um, I'll ask you this question. So if you, if tonight I said, okay, guys, we're not going to do church. I want everyone to go home because there's a meteor (laughs) 
headed towards the earth. It's going to be here in four hours, okay? You have four hours left to go back to your families, to go back to your kids, to go back to your loved ones, to whoever it is that you're closest with, and you have three or four hours to spend with them. What would you do? What would you say? What would you tell them? If you could sit down with your kids one last time, if you could sit down with the people that look up to you, the people that you've been teaching, instructing, uh, whatever it is, the people that look up to you in your life, if you could sit down with them and for only three more hours before you knew you were going to die, what would you say? What wisdom would you impart? What things would you communicate? What would those three hours look like? And I want you to file that inside of your head as we look at tonight's text because it's, it, it comes back into play. Now, Jesus' clock, the clock that is ticking down to him going to the cross is almost up. That's one thing I love about Mark. It just progresses through from beginning to end. And as we've been going, chapter after chapter, we're getting closer and closer to the imminent end of Jesus on the earth, the cross. When he would go and would be murdered, where God's wrath would be poured out on him, his back would be beaten, that he would be stretched, his hands, his feet would be nailed to the cross. The clock ticking down to that is imminent. It's short. It's close. He has a matter of, literally, guys, hours. Less than one day. Okay? Less than one day. Jesus has been anointed. He's been tested. He's been tried. He's been condemned by the religious leaders. The only thing that stands between him and the cross is the, is the condemnation to come by Pontius Pilate, that Roman governor, Right? He is condemned. It's ready. It's coming. It's happening in a matter of hours. Judas, Judas already has it in his heart that he's going to betray Jesus. It's just a matter of time. And Jesus is not a fool. He, doesn't, he, doesn't, he's, he knows what's coming. He understands what's about to happen. Okay, Through his foreknowledge, through his sovereignty, Jesus is approaching the cross with full knowledge. He knows the severity of it. He knows what that's going to look like. He knows what's about to befall him. He knows the depths of the darkness, the loneliness that's, about to, that's approaching him on the cross. And he has one day left. Okay, I can't emphasize that enough. He has one day, less than that. He has one evening left. And for the last three years, Jesus has spent all of his time with 12 men. Okay? Uh, the, last, the last three years, every morning, every night, every day, eat, sleep, breathe, all of it with these men, teaching these men, bearing with these men. He knows their weaknesses. He knows their sin. He knows their lack of qualification. He knows he would be better off handing off the church to a group of monkeys than he would be handing it off to these guys, but it doesn't matter. He's handpicked them. He's called them. He's walked through life with them. He's seen their stupidity. He's been frustrated but patient with them. He's experienced emotion towards them. He loves them with a deep, eternal love. This is the relationship that Jesus has with his disciples. Now, before we get into what Jesus does in the last few hours, we're going to spend the majority of our time in what Jesus does in his last few hours with his disciples, I want to do a little bit of background, okay? So, so get your thinking minds on. We're going to do a little bit of background, a little bit of um, historical understanding of something. And it may seem random, but you'll see why. There's something in Judaism, in Jewish history, called Passover. You guys ever heard of Passover before? It's extremely important. So we're going to look at that really quick. Now, about a thousand years, roughly a thousand years before the time of Jesus, before 1 AD century, uh, the first century, um, Israel was not yet a nation, okay? They weren't a nation yet. They were simply a people group. 
God had called Abraham and given Abraham this promise. Abraham begat Isaac. Isaac begat Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Okay? One of those sons, Joseph, entered into the land of Egypt. He was given great favor in Egypt. God had a call on his life, right? And, and he had great power. He was the right-hand man to the Pharaoh in Egypt. And because of a drought, because of the uh, famine, all of his brothers ended up having to come into Egypt as well. <clears throat> matter of years go by, after Genesis and then in Exodus, we find that Israel has multiplied greatly. There's hundreds and hundreds of these Israeli people group. They're not a nation yet. They don't have a country. They're just a people group. And Egypt's favor that they had for Joseph has gone away. So now they're slaves. This people group of slaves living within Egypt. God's grace was that he was going to not only free them from the captor of Egypt, he was also going to deliver them into their own land, the promised land, right? You guys know the story. So the way that God does this through Moses is he <clears throat> does a series of plagues on Egypt, the last of which is the most intense of all of them. You guys remember that? It was the, the, the death of the firstborn son of every family. Okay? The death of the firstborn son of every family. And God says, I'm going to create a way for the people group of Israel, soon to be the nation of Israel, to be, uh, to be able to escape that wrath by the death angel that's going to pass over and take the firstborn of every family. He says, what you're going to do is I want you to slay a lamb. Okay? I want you to sacrifice a lamb. I want you to take the blood of that lamb. It sounds morbid. Take the blood of that lamb and I want you to put it over your doorposts. And then I want you to cook that lamb fully. I want you to devour it. I want you to eat it. Each house has one lamb, okay? So that when the death angel comes by and it sees the blood of the lamb, it's going to pass over, okay, there's the word, pass over that house and not take the firstborn. So understand this, okay? As a side note, Israel was just as worthy of the wrath of God to be poured out as the Egyptians. The death angel could have easily and rightfully taken the firstborn of any family in Egypt, Israeli or Egyptian, it was only the blood of the lamb that kept the death angel from taking that firstborn, okay? That's a theological truth there. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short. Jews are not going to get into heaven just because they're Jews. It's only by atonement. It's only by the blood, right? Setting that aside. So, fast forward about a thousand years to Jesus' time, okay? This Passover, this what God did, delivering Israel out of Exodus, the Passover lamb, the meal that they ate, the way that they ate it, this has been celebrated this whole time for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now in Jesus' day, they're about to celebrate what God did in, in, in uh, Egypt, what God did through the Passover lamb. Now, Passover was about as common as Christmas would be in our country today. In Israel, in Judaism, Passover is Christmas. That's something that they do every year, okay? Especially in first century, this was huge. It was a time for family to get together. It was a time for people to, uh, to, to remember and be thankful for what God had done, that God had redeemed Israel to, to make them a nation, to raise them up, to set them free from Egypt. And what they would do is they would get together in their homes, and they would have the lamb sacrifice. Each house would have a lamb. They would have it sacrificed by the priest. They would cook the lamb, and then they would eat it together as a family, similar to Thanksgiving, right? Should have saved this for next week. It would have been perfect. Um, that was the Passover feast. Now, you have to understand something. Jerusalem at this time is bursting at the seams with people. <laughs> Why? Because it says 
in Deuteronomy 16, it says that Passover has to be celebrated within the walls of Jerusalem. So that means that all of Israel, now Israel's not very big, okay, about the size of the state of New Jersey, not very big, but still, big enough, all of Israel is going to flock into the walls of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover feast together. That's where the temple is, that's where the lambs are sacrificed, so they all come in together. Now Josephus, who is a Jewish historian, he uh, recorded at one time that at least 256,000 lambs were brought into Jerusalem for Passover, okay? A little bit of math. So if somewhere between 10 and 20 people per house had one lamb, we'll say 15, that means there was between 3 and 4 million people within Jerusalem for Passover feast. And don't think like L.A., okay? We're talking like this, the, the walls of Jerusalem were big by their standards, not very big by ours. So three to four million people came into the walls of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover feast. Pilgrims from all over, from Galilee, from tribes in the north, would come into Jerusalem. And this is the time that Jesus has picked to go to the cross. This is the time that was foreordained by God since the beginning of time, as Isaiah even says 700 years before, that the lamb would be slain. The Passover lamb, Jesus, the Passover lamb, has picked this time This is what's going on. Now, let's look at our text with all of that said. Verse 12, chapter 14 of Mark. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and and prepare for you to eat the Passover? So having that all in mind, it kind of makes sense what the disciples are saying there. They're saying, hey, Jesus, it's time to go and take the Passover meal together. Okay, um, it's time to do this. Where are we going to do it? How are we going to do it? Because this is what everybody's doing. This is what everybody's in town for. Now, Jesus has been staying with his disciples just outside of uh, Jerusalem in a city called Bethany with Mary and Martha and Lazarus. We learned about them last week, if you remember. Uh, Mary anointing Jesus' feet with her hair and the ointment. They can't do the Passover there. Why? Because it has to be inside the city walls. So the disciples say, where are we going to do it? We've got to go inside the city walls. And Jesus, in his sovereignty, answers with this. He says, in verse 13, He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready, There prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. Okay, this seems a little less random if you understand a few things historically. So Jesus says, hey, go into the city, look for a dude with a water pot. When you see that guy with a water pot, follow him. That guy's probably like, "Uh uh-oh, you know, um, they're going to mug me. No, follow that guy to his house, say, hey, we need to use your upper room. Um, it's all going to be set up. It's going to be ready to go. Now, some people debate on this. Did Jesus go ahead of them and have that set up, or did Jesus just know? doesn't matter. Um, as they go into the city, though, Jesus has them look for a guy with a water pot. Why? Because that would have been strange, first of all. Women carried water, okay? And men weren't the ones to carry water. And they typically didn't do it with pots on their head. They typically did it with, like, a stirrup-type thing, leather bags that would have carried the water. So, this would have been an unusual thing to see. So Jesus says, you're going to see an unusual sight. When you see that, follow him. It seems weird that they would just go to some random person's house, right, and meet in their upper room, but you've got to understand this. It was a customary thing. It was a, um, 
polite thing. It was sort of expected by Jews to open up their homes to pilgrims coming into the, into the city for Passover. So it wasn't random that Jesus and his disciples used an upstairs room uh, of some random person's house because ultimately they would have opened up uh, the room for that. Some people believe this was John Mark, uh, his house, uh, the one that would have wrote this uh, Mark, and that was him with the water pot. We don't really know that for sure, so I'm not going to get into that. Um, anyways, so the room, though. I want you guys to picture the room a little bit here, okay? Um, don't think big, ornate, giant room. Even though Mark says specifically that it's furnished, and that it was comfortable, and that it was large, large by our standards, and large by their standards would be completely different, okay? Um, if you've been to Israel, the houses are small. Okay, we saw Peter's house. It's like literally the size of my closet. Tiny house. Okay, I'm sure it was a little bigger than that, but still. Tiny house. Upper room would have been used for storing things, for storing goods, stuff like that, occasionally for eating. You guys are probably picturing this. Jesse, we put that first one up. You're probably picturing, I think it was Da Vinci's slide. Uh, if you guys can kind of see that. This is the traditional view of the Last Supper, right? Um, you kind of got this giant uh, Roman Catholic looking room with these big giant windows, tall ceilings, um, this table. They're all sitting at the chairs. Jesus looks like he's British, um, super pale and white. Doesn't look like a Palestinian at all. Um, they all look kind of pale. And uh, that's the traditional kind of view of Passover. There's nothing like that. <laughs> Okay, go to the next one. And this isn't, this isn't maybe perfectly accurate, but it's closer. In that culture, you didn't sit on a chair. You didn't sit on a table where your legs went under. That, was, that came later. Um, you would sit on the ground. So when it says it's furnished, it doesn't mean that you sit on chairs. It means that you would sit on like a rug or a mat or possibly a pad. And then there'd be a short table. Um, we, we sat at a table like that in Israel. It was extremely uncomfortable, especially when you're a big guy. Um, but that's what they did. Um, just a short table, and you would sort of recline at it. That's why it says that they reclined at the table, not because they were in a recliner, because they were reclining, laying on the table. They would lean on their right arm, and then they would eat with their left, dip their bread, so on and so forth. So that's a little bit more what the picture probably would have looked at. They wouldn't have been in a straight table. They would have been in sort of a horseshoe-shaped table, and they mostly would have just been on the floor. That was the reality of how people ate meals um, back then. So you can take that down. Anyways, before Jesus gets into the heart of what he wants to say, he has to deal with something. (laughs) He has to deal with something that I'm sure he doesn't want to deal with, that the disciples don't want him to deal with. In fact, they don't even know until this point what what he's going to do. Jesus has to deal with Judas. Look at verse 17. And when it was evening... He came with the twelve. As they were reclining at the table, you can picture that now, and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? He said, that, he said to them, It is one of the twelve who was dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So Jesus has to deal with this. He has to deal with Judas before he can get into releasing and giving the greatest thing that he's going to give and teach and show his disciples before his death. He has to deal with the one that does not belong. And that's Judas. And he does that promptly. He does that directly. Isn't this kind of the way life is sometimes? (laughs) 
It's just like right in the midst of awesome and exciting and amazing things like getting to celebrate the Passover feast with the disciples and with Jesus at the head of the table. Um, You have to deal with this bitterness. You have to deal with this horrible. It's just the way life is sometimes. And Jesus deals with it. He gets it out of the way. He says, one of you is going to betray me. Now, that might just seem like, yeah, okay, we know that. We've heard that. Put yourself in their shoes. I've said this already, but they have spent every hour of the last three years together. This isn't like a group of 300 where you could say, yeah, I would assume someone would betray Jesus. No, this is a tight group. This is an extremely close group. They knew each other. They knew everything about each other. They served together. They worshiped together. They lived together. And all of a sudden, Jesus drops this bomb that one of you guys is going to betray me. Now, you can imagine their hearts are pounding, their minds are spinning, and it's obvious in the way that they respond to it that they have no idea who he's talking about. They're saying things like, is it me? I mean, they know that I could be capable of that. Is it me, Jesus? I mean, I don't know. They sure as heck didn't expect it was Judas, so they thought maybe it's me. Who knows? Here's what baffles me. It baffles me that they didn't know who it was. I can't believe, I mean, think about that. How did they not know it was Judas? How did they not have an inclination of who it was? Because this guy, because Judas was a phenomenal liar. (laughs) He was a phenomenal hypocrite. He was a phenomenal actor. He did everything that they did. He came and, 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 and listened to Jesus' teachings. He healed with Jesus. He went on mission with the disciples. He handled the money. He was the financial steward, which he stole from, by the way, often. He was just like the disciples in every way. They had no idea that he was going to betray Jesus, that he was not one of them, that he had no love for Jesus in his heart, that the enemy had en- entered into his heart completely. They had no clue. Is that baffling to you? This scares me. Guys, we could be at Wednesday night service, at huddle group on Sundays, at church on Sunday morning, setting up chairs, writing the tithe check, singing the songs, with the fish thing on our bumper sticker, with, uh, you know, Christian other on Facebook, with, with Christian things in our house, and be completely filled with the heart of Satan. And not, no one would even know it. That's crazy to me. That's scary to me. That, that makes me realize that Christianity is more than just those things, doesn't it? I, I mean, guys, I'll be honest. There's people in our church that you would never guess have no genuine walk with Jesus. And in the depths of their heart, they have no interest in it. They're here for other reasons. They're here for social reasons. They're here for, for whatever they're, they're here for. This is why we preach the gospel every service. (laughs) This is why I preach the gospel every time I teach because there are people in this room probably that are not saved, that are really experts at Christian, uh, Christian life, Christian culture, the way that we do things, the way that we talk. They can pray prayers in circles and no one would ever know. They know all the right words. They know all the right things. They've heard all the right sermons. They have all the right books on their bookshelf, but they are completely unregenerate. The gospel has got to be presented every Sunday because we don't know. Sometimes the people that you would think would be the last to not be saved are the farthest from the kingdom, right? Who would have ever guessed the Pharisees? (laughs) They were the religious elite of their time. This was completely out of nowhere. No one would have thought that Jesus, Jesus said that they were whitewashed tombs. No one would have believed that, but it was the truth. They were all about the culture. They were not about the heart change. And I'll be honest, 
Christian culture is attractive in some ways, right? It feels good to be accepted. First time I went to youth group wasn't because I loved Jesus. It's because I wanted to have friends that would like me. I wanted to go a place that I felt accepted. I wanted to be where my friends were at. I wanted to go skateboard in the parking lot. Things that were cool about that and nothing to do with Jesus, right? Got to look inside of our hearts and really check and say, am I here for the right reasons? Okay, this isn't a trip like, you know, who was saved in the church. I'm not, I'm not trying to say that. I'm just trying to say that no one believed. No one could believe that it was Judas. They were blown away by that. Now, as we get into more of the heart of this, it's helpful in Luke 22, I'm going to read this. In Luke's account, now again, Mark is like the simplest gospel. I mean, he really keeps it really concise. He keeps it really simple. In Luke's gospel, he adds a few details. One specific one I want to talk about is before, in Luke's gospel, before Jesus enters into the Passover feast, he says something. He says in verse 15 of Luke 22, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Jesus says to his disciples, before he breaks the bread, before he says, drink this cup, he says, I've earnestly desired to drink this with you. Now, Jesus, I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus was not this ethereal, sort of walked around like a robot, just spouting off uh, philosophical thinking and theological thinking. That wasn't Jesus. He was a man. He was fully God, yes. Fully man, yes. And therefore, he had emotion. Therefore, Jesus, if you remember, wept at the tomb of Lazarus. You remember that? He saw Mary and and, and Martha weeping because their brother was dead in a tomb. And Jesus knew he was going to raise him, but yet his emotion was there. And he wept at the tomb because Jesus has emotion. And Jesus says that I have longed and I have hoped and I have looked forward to and I'm excited about. I cannot wait to eat this meal with you. I've looked forward to this. From the first day when Jesus called out to the fishermen and said, cast your nets on the other side of the boat, Jesus was looking forward to this meal. When Jesus called the tax collector and said, hey, it's time to get rid of this, come and follow me. When Jesus was ministering and casting out demons and coming into contact with the Pharisees, he had it on his mind, at some point I'm going to release something to these guys, I'm going to communicate something to these guys. He's looking forward to it. He longs to eat this meal. That's exciting. And guys, let me tell you, listen, he longs to communicate this to you tonight, okay? This isn't just something that was for the disciples. It's something we're going to do together tonight. And he's excited for you to partake in that, to remember what he wanted you to remember, okay? He's earnestly desired. Why does he earnestly desired to eat this feast with them? Because he's about to end an entire era of religion and begin an entirely new work. You understand that? For thousands of years, God's people have been bound by their own shortcomings in the law. They can't make it. They can't measure up. They can't do it. They're atoning for their sins with lambs, with rams, with sacrificial system. The priests, the, the priestly system is crooked. The kings have fallen. David screwed up. Abraham screwed up. Moses screwed up. All of it is a giant failure, not because of God but because man's inadequacies in that. And Jesus, in a few hours, is about to go to the cross and he's about to complete the work that was started, that was prophesied in the garden. He's about to put to death this religious system that the Jews are still fighting for. That's why they're worshiping a wall that's not even at the Temple Mount. Jesus put that to death and he said, this is no longer, I have become the priesthood, I have become the kingly line. I've become the Passover lamb. He's about to tell them that. He's about to release that to them. And he's excited about it. (laughs) He's pumped about it. 
Now, in my opening question, I asked you guys, what would you do if you had three hours left with your families? This is what Jesus does. This is what Jesus says. Let's get into it. First thing, before we get into the text, Jesus leaves the script. You guys got to understand something. Passover was done in a very specific and symbolistic and orderly way. Okay? First, the young kid at the, to the youngest kid in the house would say, Dad, or whoever was leading this Passover, why, why do we take Passover? And then the dad would explain, well, son, back in, in, in Egypt when we were um, captive to Israel and et cetera, and the Passover lamb and, and yada, yada. And then, and then they would drink a glass of wine. They would take four glasses of wine. And they would take a glass of wine. And then they would take the bread, they would tear the bread, which represented all kinds of different things, the, the hurry that they were in to get out of Egypt, it was unleavened, um, the, 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 the manna from heaven, and then they would drink another glass of wine. It was diluted wine, don't worry. Um, you guys are like, oh, they were drunk. Uh, then they would uh, take the Passover lamb, drink another glass of wine, and then they would finally, uh, they would sing a psalm and drink another glass of wine. That's how Passover feast happened. It was a symbolistic thing. Now, Jesus completely has a new idea here. Jesus doesn't do that order. He does take those elements, the blood, uh, the, the wine, I'm sorry, and the bread. He does take those elements and he has something he's gonna say about those, but he, he sort of departs from that. So look at verse 22. And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take, this is my body. Now, for those of you guys that grew up in church, your brain is shutting off right now. <laughs> You're saying, I know what communion is. I've been taking it for the, my entire life. I get it. Yeah, the body, it's his bread. Yeah, bread's his body. I get it. Um, okay, no, don't shut your mind off, you guys. This is not something we can become uh, used to, comfortable with, because this is something that Jesus, one of the few things along with baptism that Jesus said, this is something you need to do always. So don't shut your brains off, okay? What is the bread? What's Jesus saying here? He's saying it's my body. Now, this was not the first time Jesus talked about his body being bread, okay? If you remember in John chapter 6, Jesus is preaching to the multitudes. There's a big crowd. They start getting hungry, okay? So Jesus says, what do we have? He says, we have some loaves. We have some fishes. You guys remember this story? He multiplies the loaves, the fishes, into enough to feed thousands of people. He feeds them, okay? End of the day. They go on about their merry way. The next day, this crowd comes back. And in your head, you're like, oh, that's awesome. That's exciting. Well, Jesus knows better, okay? He's more, he, he has more wisdom than we do. He says, you guys are here not because you want to see the power of God, not because you're interested in the gospel, not because you want to know the truth. You're here because you want your bellies filled. <laughs> you're here because you're hungry. You're here because you want more food. Remember that? And then Jesus proceeds to say this in John 6, 25. I'll just read it. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes, I'm sorry, John 6, 47, if you were taking notes. Truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am, listen, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, the bread that came down from heaven, and they died. (laughs) It could not sustain them. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. In case you didn't get that, verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. 
Then the Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? What's he talking about? We're supposed to go gnaw on his arm or something? What's this guy? I mean, this is weird. Talking about eating his flesh. This is bonkers. I never use that word. I don't know why. Uh, So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink, I mean, Jesus made it so clear, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And you remember what happened? They all left. They said, this is too weird. We're out of here. Enough of this. This guy's talking about eating his flesh. What is he, a cannibal? What are you, crazy? They're out of here. Hundreds of them. Thousands of them. Gone. Jesus comes up to his disciples and he says, so, are you guys going to take off too? Are you going to, can you handle this? Is this too weird for you? And you remember what Peter says? He says, where else could we go? <laughs> you have the words of eternal life. In other words, yeah, that's really weird, Jesus. I don't know what you're talking about, but the reality is you have the answers. You are life. And, and you, you raise people from the dead and you cast out demons and you have this way about you. You have wisdom. People listen to you. You have the words of eternal life. You are the source of what we're looking for. So even though that's kind of strange, we're in, right? We're in. So fast forward the clock. Jesus is now here eating his Passover feast, and he's saying the same thing. It wasn't the first time he said it. He's reminding his disciples, take this bread. Take this bread because this is my body that's broken for you. Now Jesus isn't talking about his physical, literal body. Now they're... um, some of the Catholics, some of our Catholic brothers over there, they, they believe that when you take the bread, it actually, it's called transubstantiation, actually becomes the body of Christ within you. Some crazy stuff. Um, they've probably thought about it a lot harder than I am, so I'm not going to get on too much about it. But, but it's not a literal, physical, this is the body of Jesus. This is a remembrance of Jesus' body, firstly on the cross, that it was broken, that it was, that it was beaten, that it was taken the place of our sin in the wrath of God. It's, it's not that it's his physical body that we're eating. It's that it's all of his being. It's his person. It's his wholeness. It's that when we take the bread, we're saying, Jesus, you are everything for me, and I'm taking you in. I'm taking you in. Jesus says to them in that story, he says, your fathers ate manna, and they're dead. What is he saying by that? He's saying that your grumbling fathers, the Israelites in the desert, they were mad because they were hungry, and so I gave them bread, and then they wanted more, so I gave them quail. And guess what? They never made it into the promised land because all they were thinking about was their stinking bellies. <laughs> all they were thinking about was food. All they could think about was, I want bread right now. And I love, yes, yeah, Stephanie, I love food too, man. Yeah, food's good. Jesus is like, it's better than that. It's farther than that. You gotta want more than just bread. Your fathers only wanted bread, and guess what? They died. They didn't make it into the the promised land. Jesus said, I can't use any of you. I got to get waited for a whole new generation. (laughs) Now, how does this change things for us? Okay, how does this change things for us? What is Jesus talking about the bread being his body? What does that mean for us? I want to tell you guys, the common approach to religion in general, in our country and really in the world, is this. I want religion in my life. I want God in my life, some sort of God, some sort of deistic authority, some sort of, you know, religious function, something in my life. In our country, it's all very personal. I want it at home where no one can see it because I don't want to offend anybody. But I want some sort of God. I want some sort of religion so that 
I can do better in life, right? Isn't that, isn't that kind of why people want Christianity? Isn't that kind of why people want religion? Because they want to get through their day. They want to be stronger. They want to be better. It's sort of like the supplement, right? It's like this protein powder they throw in their smoothie, right? This is the idea of Christianity. It's the idea of God, of religion. I want just enough God to, to get me through the day, like a, like a protein bar in the morning, like a, a vitamin in the morning. It's just going to give me that extra jolt, is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying, take this bread. Eat this bread. It'll make your life better. It'll give you the strength you need to be successful, to be powerful, to be awesome in life. Is that what Jesus is saying here? Is he saying, here, you need food. Food's important. Food's gonna make you strong. Food's gonna make you great. No, he's saying, you need me. You can eat food till the day you die, but you're still gonna die. <laughs> You can have everything that you need, all of the physical comforts, amenities, foods, nutrition, strength, exercise, all of your life. You can add some religion here or there. You can say, I'm going to go to this meeting and that meeting and this church because it makes me feel good. But in reality, your life is going to end. And if you do not take me in as the source of life, as the bread of life, as the sustenance of your life, then there's nothing for you past that. That's it. That's what Jesus is saying. Christianity, the gospel, is not a supplemental thing. It's this is everything that I need. It's everything that I eat. Jesus is saying, take me the bread, not as something that you add to your diet, but everything. He says, I have to be everything in your life. I have to be all that you need, all that you want. If you love physical things more than you love me, if you're eating something other than me as the bread, then you will die of maltrition spiritually. You will end your life and have nothing past it. It's incredibly important. Then, verse 23. He took a cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. And now, guys, in the Old Testament... You might know this, but listen. In the Old Testament, blood was always the symbol of covenants, okay? When Abraham, when God made covenant with Abraham, he, he did it with blood. He had to uh, take uh, livestock, and it sounds horrible, split them in half, and then literally walk through the middle of that livestock. It sounds, it sounds crazy, but listen. The Mosaic covenant, the lamb, the rams, the different sacrifices, it was always blood that made the covenant. God always made covenant with blood. In the Passover, it was blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. Why blood? Why blood? Blood is the life of the body. You understand that? Without blood, I have no life. That's why my heart's so important, because my heart is pumping blood to every part of my body. So what God is saying is it's not blood specifically. What blood represents is life, that we have a debt to pay, that we are sinners, by nature, by choice, and that we are at a standing with God that only can be paid by our life. So that, therefore, the ultimate enemy is death. Therefore, atonement can only be made by blood. Blood is the symbol in the Old Testament of atonement. So, what Jesus is doing in saying that the cup is his blood, is he's saying that I'm going to make a new covenant with you. God made lots of covenants in the Old Testament. He made the, the Noahic covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, the Davidic covenant, and so on and so forth. This is the covenant. Listen, this is the covenant to end all covenants. 
The final covenant. Jesus says, take this cup and remember that this covenant is not like the one I made with your fathers where it was conditional, where they had to do something in order to be in this covenant with me. No, this one's different. This one is me going to the cross. This one is me pouring out my blood. The ultimate, the ending, end all sacrifice to make an eternal covenant, a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. Now, why do we have to take the cup all the time? Because listen, guys, we are wired. We are default set to legalism and to work for our own, to work for our own salvation. You guys understand that? You will always come back to that. You'll find yourself always coming back to that. This, this idea of grace, unmerited, undeserved favor, this idea of something that we have not earned, it goes against who we are. At the very core of who we are, we want to work for our salvation. I've been doing some studying on the, the religion of Islam. I swear, I'm, I'm, I'm tying it up. The religion of Islam is interesting to me. It's the fastest growing religion in the world. We need to know about it. Okay? It, it's leaking out of Islam. It's leaking out of the Middle East. It's coming into the United States. It's coming into Europe. It's coming into Africa, especially. Um, it's all over the place now. It's huge. And the interesting thing about Islam is that they, first of all, they don't believe in original sin. What that means is, is they don't believe that you're born into sin. Christianity, we believe that we are born into a fallen state, that we've inherited the sin of our father, Adam, and that we choose to live and walk in that sin of our father, Adam. They don't believe that. Okay, Islam believes that we have been given everything we need from birth to live out a right life. So that means, essentially, that it's up to me. It's on my shoulders to live a good or a bad life. They believe, essentially, guys, that when you die, you're going to stand before Allah, and he's going to look at you, and he's going to have a scale. And on one side of that's going to be everything bad that you did. On the other side of it's going to be everything good. And if it tips, even if it's .00001, in the, in the case of good, you're set. Right? I wonder why they're flying buildings and no airplanes. That gets them into heaven. Okay? This is what they believe. Now, they also see Christianity, listen, they see Christianity as a weak religion. Why? Because they see Christianity as people saying that they can't pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. See, in Islam, you are not born into sin. You, you, you have the strength that you need to serve Allah, to be a good person, and you do it in your life. In Christianity, we are born in sin. We are completely at the mercy of God. If God does not intervene, if God does not come into our life and give us a new heart and teach us to live for him, we have no hope. Islam would see that as weakness. You're so weak. You think that you need someone to come into your life and to give you grace. Well, in Islam, you don't need grace. You don't need forgiving. You don't need salvation because you are your own savior. That's what they believe. And it's attractive to people. Why? Because like I said, we are default wired to want to think that way. The gospel would never be thought up by man. Why? Because it has nothing to do with man. If you were to make a religion, it would look just like Islam. I'm awesome. I'm the reason I get into heaven. The more things I do, the better I am, the more religious I am. Therefore, it's a pride. It boasts my pride. It makes me feel good about myself. No one would ever think of a gospel where you literally are completely at the mercy of the grace of God. That if he didn't send his son Jesus Christ in to pay for your sin, you would pay for your sin in eternity forever. No one would ever think of that. Because it's completely unman-centered. The gospel is nothing to do with man and everything to do with the grace of God. Why do I say all that? First of all, I realized how close Islam is to what we're preaching in our country. It's all about you. You're a good person. It's your surroundings that makes you a bad person. 
You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You believe in yourself. That's what Disney's telling our kids, right? Believe in yourself. You're the one that's going to deliver you. You have everything that you need to, to, to be awesome in life. It's completely the contrary, completely contrary to the gospel. And what Jesus is saying is you need to take this cup often because you will forget that it's all by my grace and you will begin to think because you're default wired to think it that way that you are saving yourself. That's why we do that every Wednesday. That's why we do that. Try to, we're doing that now once a month, every Sunday, because we need to remember that when we take that cup, it is all Jesus' blood. It's not about our own works. It's not about our own actions. We can't save ourselves. We're completely dependent on his grace. We're completely dependent on his salvation. And what that means for us, guys, what that means for us as Christians is that we do not have to work for our faith. It is a gift. And now we live lives of worship and of peace. You know what the terrifying thing about Islam is? They have no clue whether they're saved. They have to wait until they die and stand before Allah and he says, yeah, okay, you did good. They have no assurance of salvation. It's completely up in the air. Who knows? I don't know about you guys, but I am saved. <laughs> I have received the grace of God, and I have assurance of that because, not because I'm an awesome Christian or because I'm a pastor or because I know the Bible or any of that stuff. I'm saved because Jesus is gracious. I'm saved because he is bigger than my sin, because he is stronger than my shortcomings, because he is greater than my failures, and I have assurance in that because of who he is, not because of what I did. And I don't have to wait until I stand before God to say, I hope that my good outweighs my bad, because I'll tell you right now, it doesn't. <laughs> it does not. Say, so I just spilled my water. I would fail, epically. Water all over my place. <laughs> um, now it's dripping on my foot. Lastly, verse 25, we'll wrap it up with this. Verse 25, truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. That's a verse that I read over a lot in my life. And this week, I, I just realized how amazing what Jesus is saying right there. I just realized how amazing what he's saying. Now, now is Jesus talking about He's basically saying, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna drink of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom of God is new, okay? Now in Luke, he says, I'm not gonna eat this feast again. And that's helpful, okay? To me, that, 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 it doesn't make sense. Is Jesus saying that he's not gonna eat food? Because <laughs> the first thing he does when he gets resurrected is eat food, right? Which shows that he's bodily resurrected. He's not just a spirit, he's a man. He's been resurrected. What Jesus is saying here is he's making this oath and we live in a culture that holds our yes and our no in such low regard, right? We have to say things like, no, I swear I'll do it. <laughs> no, I promise, I'll, I'll, really, I'll do it. Our yes is not our yes. Our no is not our no. We flake out all the time. We say we're going to do things, and we don't do it. But in this culture, this is an honor-shame culture. This is an honor-shame society. When you say something like, I will not drink of the vine until you are delivered into the kingdom of God, that was not something that you did lightly. Jesus says, I will not eat of this feast again until the kingdom has come. He's saying two things. He's saying, I won't do it until, first of all, every person that is predestined, every person that God is going to call, every person that will be saved is delivered into the kingdom. That's what we're waiting for right now. Whenever that last person gets saved, it's on, right? And he says, I will not eat of this again until we are together in heaven eating this feast again. The title of this message, you guys, the title of this message is, is not the Last Supper. That's it. 
quotations, not the Last Supper. Because this, even though it's called that, it's not the Last Supper. It's not. This is not the last Passover feast that Jesus is going to eat with his disciples. It's not. We always think that it is. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying, we're going to eat this feast again. And I am not going to eat this feast until I eat it with you again in heaven. That's a promise. And Jesus does not, listen, Jesus does not, he does not break his promises. Why? Because he's perfect and he's holy and he's true and he can't. Jesus says that we will eat this feast with him again. Now, the reason I talked about Passover feast was for a reason. Why is it significant that we're going to eat a Passover feast again? What was Passover? It was the deliverance of God's people out of the hands of Egypt into their own nation. What are we going to be celebrating in heaven? Is it going to be Israel being delivered from Egypt? No. We will be having a Passover feast in heaven centered around the Lamb, Jesus Christ, not celebrating an exodus from Egypt, but celebrating an exodus from this world. We've been freed from sin, from death, from wrath, and now he's established his kingdom forever. And just like Israel became a nation, even though they failed, we will have a nation that will never fail. A kingdom in heaven forever with Jesus at the center, the Lamb. Listen to this, Revelation 19. It's going to be up here. Revelation 19, 6 through 9. Then... I heard what seemed to be, now hold on, this is at the end, okay? This is Revelation, the end of the book. This is the kingdom, okay? This is the fulfillment. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now listen, verse seven. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory for the marriage of the what? For the marriage of the what? has come and his bride, who is the bride? We are, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints because of the blood of Jesus Christ, right? Verse nine, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. This is not the Last Supper. What we just read is the Last Supper. You are invited. You are the church. You are the bride, and you will be adorned in white, not in filthy rags, because Jesus took your filthy rags. He cast them aside. He burned them. He dealt with them. They're gone. You'll be clothed in righteous raiment and pure wool and garments. And we will sit at the marriage feast, the final Passover, celebrating the exodus not from Israel, but from sin and from death and from pain and from hurt and from struggle. That's the truth. That's the Last Supper. Okay? So when you see pictures of the Last Supper, and when you read about the Last Supper, you can think, that was so cool, Jesus really wanted to share that with him. But how much more does he want to share the last supper in the kingdom of heaven with his bride forever in perfect peace and perfect joy and perfect harmony? Amen?